This is Kyle Worley. I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin, JT English. What's up, guys? How's it going? Going okay. Going okay. Hanging in there. Hanging Loving in this. there. The, I, 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 that's just, these are my favorite episodes. Q&A uh, episodes. q are so fun. I'm okay. doing great. Let the listener beware that Kyle and JT have already been arguing with one another before we ever hit record. Yeah, there was some name calling in there. There was uh, <laughs> some jesting, um, some jocularity, if you will. And uh, I imagine that will continue for this episode. But we we did, I did, I want to say I came as a person of peace to JT before yes. we even put a question out. And I said, JT, I'd like to make a covenant with you right now yes. that we will not object to everything the other says for this whole episode. And JT said, I reject your covenant. Yeah, I, so reject I just want it. you to know. I just want you to know, I came as a person of peace, an olive branch. And JT said, no, I don't want it. So I, I'll, I'll make covenant with people I can trust. I mean, this oh is not Oh, my it's, gosh. Let's go. go. Okay, let's yeah, do let's, it. Come on. Let's, let's do it. Well, before we jump into the episode, before we explore our questions, I have something I want you to explore. We want to thank our sponsor for this season, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. You may have been listening to Knowing Faith and thinking, I want more of this kind of stuff, but I'm really not sure that seminary would be right for me. Well, Southern Seminary has created a sbts.edu slash explore link sbts.edu slash explore. This is specifically for Knowing Faith listeners to help them discover the right degree for their goals. This online diagnostic tool considers the theological training you have now, factors in what more you may want to accomplish, and explores with you the Southern Seminary degree that will prepare you to do more for the kingdom of Christ. So whether you're exploring the idea of theological training or you feel called to full-time ministry, you can get personalized guidance at sbts.edu slash explore. Let's jump in. You are, let me just say this. You guys are the best audience in mm-hmm. podcasting. Mm-hmm. I believe it. I agree. I just want to commend a few things. One, you're not a group of complainers in the comments. I love how yes. our audience engages in the comments. Keep that up. It makes us want to do stuff like this and not shut down all of our social media channels. <laughs> <laughs> so, Beca- become an anti-social media yes, space. Uh, yeah. so, so keep that up. You guys are phenomenal. Your support is great. You share the episodes. You get them out to a wider audience. We have literally, we are now in the tens of millions of downloads for Knowing Faith, which is an incredible thing. And we are very excited. And people are downloading the episodes all over the world. So you guys are helping do that. Uh, You're helping share that. You're helping to engage with that. And we just want to say you're the best audience in podcasting. Because of that, we love doing the Q&A episodes where we get to answer your questions. So this first one goes to Jen. Steven says on our Facebook page, he asked this, Jen, I have heard you at least twice talk about situations where it's okay to lie. I think you use the phrase truth to whom truth is due. How does that fit with scripture admonitions against lying? You guys are some of the best Bible teachers I know, so obviously you're not saying to just lie whenever. Please help. <laughs> Thanks, Jen, for all the work you do keeping JT and Kyle in line and on track. That's, that's where she lies. That's where you she's lying. Yeah, that, that's what I was about to say. Stephen is li- straight up lying. <laughs> yeah. Stephen, you're lying. That's a lie. Stephen sounds like a great guy. No uh, I lies. bet he does. Um, I bet he does. Yeah, so I would say it's not just that sometimes there are situations where it's okay to lie. I would say there are sometimes situations where you have a moral imperative to lie. So I just you know, just up the ante. I realized that. Um, now, those situations are probably few and far between. Some of us may never face one in a lifetime. In fact, I think you'd be blessed if you could say that at the end of your lifetime. The principle of we owe the truth to whom the truth is due 
is um, talking about doing ethical triage on a situation where you are being um, told to bear witness to something. So, um, for example, uh, the Hebrew midwives, they're, they're a good example of this. If they tell the truth to Pharaoh about what they're doing with to spare the Hebrew baby boys, then it will result in bloodshed. Um, so weighing the two ethical concerns of being truthful in our words versus preserving human life, they do the only thing that is reasonable to do in that situation, mm-hmm. and they lie to preserve human life. Um, In a situation where that ethical consideration is not at stake and where the person asking for the truth is a good faith actor, then we should yield up the truth. Um, Christians would not lie under oath on the witness stand. You know, we would we would look to serve justice where justice can be served, and we would be people who are characterized by our words um, having integrity. So, um, so to talk about that, it's sometimes okay to lie is to look at the outlier situations um, that we see in Scripture and acknowledge why they're there, um, versus taking a wooden understanding of of the admonitions in scripture to be truthful and say, uh, and assigning a, a negative moral component to the actions of those who the scripture does not assign it to. Yeah, that's really good. That's good. Nailed it. I love that. Uh, Bims on Instagram. What do you think of the conversations about how we should not refer to ourselves as sinners once we're saved? I, I'd love to take a crack. Yeah, this one's you, Kyle. Um, so I, Bims, first off, thank you for the question. I love this question. I love talking about it. It's not that the Christian having experienced salvation doesn't sin any longer. Now, I'll say this. I hope all Christians sin less. Yeah. Incrementally, time, day, after, day after day, uh, time after time. That's a song. <laughs> <laughs> I heard it in my head when I was saying Time that. after time. Oh, gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Okay, Engineer that, Brad, maybe consider cutting nope, that out. Um, <laughs> absolutely not. That has to okay. stay. Keeping it. Back to, back to Bims. Um, Bims, yeah, it's not to say that Christians don't sin after they experience salvation, though I hope everybody sins less having experienced the grace of God in Jesus, and I hope they sin less and less as they grow more and more into the image of Christ Jesus. I don't think that we should refer to ourselves as sinners after salvation if by that we mean it is who we are fundamentally. That we're no longer, if by sinner we mean one who is separated from God, alienated, fundamentally unrighteous, and in Adam or under the federal headship of Adam. If that's what we mean by sinner, and I do think that is where the Bible begins when it's talking about sin, which is that you are in Adam then I would say, then no, that's no longer a proper description for a Christian because a Christian is one who is no longer in Adam. They are now in Christ Jesus. And so that's, again, not to say that they're perfect. I think of Hebrews 10, 14 is the verse I always go to here. For by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That gets the tension right. Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So can a Christian, is a Christian a sinner? Well, if you're saying, does a Christian sin? The answer is yes. All Christians sin. I hope they sin less and less. Is a Christian fundamentally a sinner? I would say I would be hesitant to ascribe that as a descriptor because I think a sinner is one who is fundamentally separated from God and Christians are no longer that. Jen. Okay, first of all, who is having this argument? Well, 
I think that the Lutheran tradition was very, uh, they were very uh, concerned to talk about uh, simul justice et peccator. Right. Simultaneously just and Whoa. sinner. Right. Um, and I think a lot of gospel-centered preaching, yeah. because it preaches evangelistically to the lowest common denominator, speaks to all Christians like they are terrible, wicked sinners all the time. Because it's like, doesn't everybody need to hear the message of repentant, uh, repentance and faith and grace all the time? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that can get people into thinking like, wait, I guess I'm always in forever a sinner, but I, I don't think so. But I hear this come up all the time. Huh. So here's, here's my simple formula, whoever this will help. Think in terms of positional versus practical. So positionally, you are not a sinner. You're no longer a sinner. Practically, you're still sinning. So this is the difference between justification and sanctification, right? So mm-hmm. positionally, um, our guilt is removed. Um, and then practically, we still continue in sin. But as Kyle was pointing out, hopefully less and less so over time. Andrew, on our Facebook page, asked JT, JT, if God knew his plan of unconditional election would send the majority of people he created to hell, why did he create man at all? Well, that's a good question. And we can't answer it simply on a podcast. I mean, this is one of those historically challenging questions. And, and I think a, f- a few things to think through, uh, Andrew. First, anytime we talk about this question, our first appeal is to the character of God. God is good and God does good. Uh, I, I wonder if the question that might be, I don't mean to tweak the question. I think what the better category for me rather than unconditional election is probably more like limited atonement or particular redemption. The question so much is 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 not so much um, why did God create us, but why doesn't God save everybody? Is that a fair way to phrase it, Kyle? Yeah, absolutely. That, seem, that seems more like what, what we're talking about here. And I, the first thing I think about is Romans 9. So you should tune back into what we're going to do in Romans chapter 9 in the in the next semester. But Paul, in a similar conversation about God's sovereignty, God's choice, and God's creation, asks a similar question. After talking about God's sovereign choice in Romans chapter 9, verse 19, he says, Who will say to me then, why does God find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now, I'm not suggesting that's you, Andrew, but it is important for all of us to realize we none of us get to decide God's providential sovereign plans, God does. So who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with patience, that's an important part of the passage, endured with patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So one of the shocking things for us, and if we lose this from our gospel, we lose the essence of the gospel. The shock is not so much that God doesn't elect all. It's that God elects some. The shock of the gospel, the the, the thing that should capture our imaginations isn't the idea that God elects or doesn't elect all, but that he has elected any of us. Mercy, by definition, is not equitable. It's favor. It's grace. It's mercy. We all deserve to be vessels of wrath in this sense. But God has created some vessels of wrath so that he might also demonstrate the power of his mercy. And that is not to then highlight the judgment of God. It's to highlight the mercy of God that I'm not sure we've captured how bad sin actually is how far away we've actually fallen from God. When we can ask questions like this, why wouldn't God, why wouldn't God just save all of us? 
Well, we don't understand what sin is. Sin destroys us. It destroys God's creation. It separates us from the presence of God. And God, because he's rich in mercy, has saved and elected some. That's good. I love that. Thank you, JT. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Jackson on Instagram, what's your best marriage advice? <laughs> Let me get it out of my notepad to write down whatever Jen's about to say. <laughs> yeah, okay. You guys go first. You guys go first. Um, go in uh, order of length of marriage. Let's do that. Oh, length of marriage. How long have you been married, the longest? Uh, Yeah, how years. long have you been married? Okay, I think you're I'm first. Four. Yeah, I'm 14 years. Okay. Uh, cultivate friendship with your spouse. I, I just think cult- have fun. Like, mm-hmm. honestly, I know that sometimes this gets over-spiritualized. I think there's a lot, like, pray, pray, all these things. Like, yeah, pray, <laughs> go on date nights. That's all great stuff. Like, have fun with your spouse. Just, like, cultivate friendship. Play, you want to play board games? Play board games. You guys want to go for walks? Go for walks. Go mm-hmm. for runs. Just cultivate friendship. Do puzzles. Have some fun. That's really yeah. good, Kyle. I mean, I'm saying basically the same thing. I, I was going to say, like, before you said that, Kyle, the phrase that came to my mind was marry your best friend. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, Macy was my best friend. I love her. Uh, I mean, she is just wonderful. I want, like, I desire to be with her. I, we like laughing together. We like doing things together. And Jen, you've said something similar uh, to me before. It's like, I, I almost feel not qualified to give good marriage mm-hmm. advice because I have a great marriage. Like, mm-hmm. my marriage isn't hard. I genuinely just love being with her. I think that's the best thing I've ever done is I, I, decided to spend the rest of my life with someone that I liked. Yeah, but well, since you guys both said that, I'll, I'll give a little marriage advice to people who perhaps are with someone they don't particularly <laughs> enjoy all the time. Although I would, the same thing is true for me. I, I just, Jeff and I are, you know, we, we looked for a lot of ways to have overlap. Like um, I think it's Ben Stewart who says most of marriage is just hanging out. So marry yeah. someone you want to hang out with. I always love that. Um, but my advice would be um, to always remember that your spouse is your neighbor. Um, because I think that sometimes the over-familiarity that comes from marriage means that I hold my spouse to a higher standard of compliance and, you know, set set um, bars for them to jump over that I would not set for any other person I'm in relationship with. Now, obviously, more is at stake in the marriage relationship than in some of my other relationships, but I think it's a good grounding reminder to think, okay, I'm supposed to love my neighbor as I love myself. And mm-hmm. um, whatever else Jeff Wilkin is to me, he is at bare minimum 
minimum my neighbor? Do I treat yeah. him at bare minimum with the kindness that I would treat the neighbor four doors down? Yeah. Um, you know, when when there's um, stress or something like that going on. So, yeah, I love that. I got a question. I I know it's not our Q and A, but can I throw an extra one in here? Uh huh. What do you guys think of the idea of dating your spouse? Do you date your spouse? This feels like a trap. Yeah. No, to- I'm really asking because I feel like there's a lot of opinions on it. I mean, if by dating your spouse, do I mean like I want to extend creative, thoughtful, meaningful ways of engaging the person I'm married to? Yeah. Do I want to make time for us to be together? Yeah. I just did something for Lauren. She doesn't even know that it's coming. It's going to just surprise her in the spring. Boom. It's going to just like, it's going to happen. I, I love, I love, I love that. I, I love, love that I you love, have a sound effect for it. I, that's that's what I heard it in my head when I said gestures, it. Gestures, if for those of you who missed it. Um, <laughs> but I love I love getting to do stuff like that, and I think she's blessed by it, and I'm blessed by it, and vice versa. Yeah, I'm talking about like, do you have a date night once a week? People will be like, oh, uh, you got to go on dates once a week, or your marriage is going to be in the toilet. Yeah, I mean, for us, for Macy and I, like, we try to be intentional. We we don't so much set like a every Thursday night we go on a date, but we really try to be intentional about every month. We want two to three times where we're getting some time alone. What's incredible to me is how slow the world becomes when we get to go do that. Like you have like a two hour (laughs) dinner over some Mexican food and you're like, oh my gosh, is this what normal people experience when you don't have two, you know, six and four year olds running around? So yeah, I'd agree with Kyle. And I do think for for some of us, like life is happening really fast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether it's jobs, uh, just preoccupations, distractions, all kinds of things in our world. The more intentional we are, I think the more likely it is we're actually going to do it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm for intentionality for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't really do that, but we're on the eternal date night that is empty nesting. So it's fine. <laughs> well, on, wonderful. Uh, uh, in, re- in regards to uh, eternal date nights of empty nesting, Molly asked on Instagram, what are your thoughts on Christians reading apocryphal documents? <laughs> Wow. Uh, we, you're the OG. Is there a topic that we won't cover here? Uh, no. I mean, in the Q&A episodes, it's a uh, you know, free-for-all, really. From marriage uh, to the apocryphal. Wait, apocrypha. first, someone say what apocryphal, I can't even say it, apocryphal, <laughs> apocryphal, uh, apocryphal documents. What are they? Tell the average learner, of which I am one. Apocryphal documents are non-canonical uh, documents that are happening. Great. Third, third Corinthians, for example. Yeah. <laughs> Paul's shopping list. <laughs> no, let's not go there. Let's not go there, JT. I'm keeping my side of the covenant here. Um, they are. You have uh, a covenant with nobody, my friend. <laughs> okay, apocryphal documents are are non-canonical for, uh, and that's maybe even loose to say it because the Catholics would include what we would call some apocryphal documents into their canon. But th- the fact of the matter is this. The, uh, for Protestants, apocryphal books can be broadly basically understood as docu- non-canonical books of the Bible or documents that are uh, related to the history stories that you might find in the Bible adjacently, directly, or indirectly that speak to some of the issues of the Jewish people. For example, the intertestamental period has some apocryphal documents in it that are non-canonical, meaning they're not in our Bibles. Mm-hmm. First and second Maccabees would be a very clear demonstration of that. First and second Maccabees talk about some Jewish zealot revolts in the face of uh, Gentile persecution and uh, really, gosh, captivity of Israel and Jerusalem. So Molly, should somebody read first and second Maccabees? 
yeah, I mean, if they want to get a basic understanding of some of what was happening in the intertestamental period, reading First and Second Maccabees for some historical context is not unhelpful. Now, should somebody read First and Second Maccabees as the inspired word of God? No, they shouldn't. They're non-canonical for a reason, which is that the church did not believe that they were self-authenticating documents, letters that demonstrated the authority that was commensurate with the word of God. So the church has received the word of God. And in their reception of the word of God, there are some that did not show the same level of authority or credibility. And the non-canonical apocryphal text would be included in that. But I'll tell you this, I have learned a lot from reading intertestamental apocryphal text about the social and cultural and political milieu that Jesus was entering into in, in the ministry. So I would just say, if you look at a lot of serious gospel scholarship, uh, your Richard Bockham's, your Scott McKnight's, your Jonathan Pennington's, your N.T. Wright's, they're going to reference apocryphal documents because they're significant for understanding that social, political, and cultural milieu of the Gospels and then subsequently Second Temple Judaism. So they're helpful, but they're not inspired. Kyle, if you can say non-canonical apocryphal documents three times in a row without messing it up, <laughs> we will never tease you about mispronouncing a certain location in the Bible again. I don't covenant into this. I'm not, I'm not even going to try on that one. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to try. JT, anything to add there, Jen? No, JT? that's great. No, that's and great. I, I think I think that's actually an instinct. Like, if I was just going to say, like, principally, an instinct that we should all, you know, be continuing to develop is we don't need to be afraid of documents of reading things we disagree with. We mm-hmm. should enjoy it. Like, the Bible has nothing to hide. We have nothing to hide about what we, what we believe. Engage things that both are going to have truth and error in them with the lens of truth. That being Scripture. It's good. It's yeah. good. Uh, Courtney on Instagram asked, what is your favorite book that you read in 2021 and what books are you reading now? Uh, for me, that's the same book. I'm only a couple hundred pages into it. It's it's a long, It's the, this is actually the longest book other than scripture that I've ever read. It's Grant Chernow's book on uh, Ulysses S. Grant. And oh, it's, yeah. uh, oh. I, I love, love, love books of history and biography. Uh, and I was talking to somebody about it last night. For, there's something about history and biography. It's like I'm also rewatching Band of Brothers right now, which I wanted mm. to talk about with you guys at some point. There's something about watching other humans struggle that I don't enjoy. It's not like I enjoy watching the struggle, but it it decreases my anxiety levels. <laughs> it reminds me like, hey, there, there are battles to fight. There are hard situations that come, and perseverance, resiliency is ultimately one of the greatest virtues that we can cultivate. So watching him or Easy Company kind of fight through really hard situations is one of the reminders for me that – this is what life is, and it requires community, it requires conviction, it requires uh, diligence and intelligence to push through some challenging situations like Grant did. So I think it's, I don't know how, what the page count is. It's over a thousand pages. So I'm, I'm just praying I persevere and make it through. But it's, mm-hmm. it's been both a, a good book, and I'm currently enjoying it still. My favorite from last year was Extremely Loud, Incredibly Close, which mm-hmm. I had never read. I think we talked about it on here. Um, and it was timely because it was the anniversary of 9-11, and it was um, a... Mm-hmm. Just a, it was a very reflective way to think back on that, and it was a beautifully written book, and I loved it. Um, and right now, I am reading Dun 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 Jesus and John Wayne. <gasps> I said it on the podcast, and wow. it's really interesting. I am enjoying um, hearing her thoughts a lot. I wouldn't say I'm enjoying it; it's kind of cringy, but um, yeah, we'll see. And then I'm about to start reading a. Um, historical fiction series that our family loves. It's the Lyman Chronicles by Dorothy Dunnett. I've read it 
probably four or five times before and I'm getting ready to read it again. It's about five books wow. in the series. So, yeah. And just, awesome. you know, pointing back to the apocryphal literature conversation, uh, if it raises your blood pressure that I'm reading Jesus and John Wayne, just know that it's also important for us to read things that we may not agree with completely because it helps us to sharpen our thinking on the things that we do believe. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That's I read good. it too. Why well, I audio booked it. I'm not sure we can say read. I audio booked it. You listened to it. I did. You uh, ingested it. Um, I, uh, I I read my favorite book in 2021, uh, this book called Deep Discipleship. Ooh. Um, <laughs> real, real standout. Um, Do you like the scratch books, and sniff what, pop out? What, 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 what books am I reading right now? Um, that would be 10 Words to Live By, None Like Him, oh my. Made oh in my His gosh. Image, Women so of the you laugh, you laugh when it happens to yeah. me. Um, uh, no, I read uh, my favorite book of 2021 was a science fiction series called Red Rising. I could not stop it. It was so fun to read. It was a huh. lot of fun. How many really dragons were there? Uh, no dragons, not uh, not science fiction fantasy, so so no dragons, but really fun, really good. What am I reading right now? I'm reading a lot right now. I'll just mention a couple. Uh, one is I'm reading John Mark Comer's new book, Live No Lies, yeah. which is really really good. Um, I've been uh, I've enjoyed it a lot, and then uh, I've also been reading. Uh, the History of Easy Company, the Band of Brothers book, basically the, that the show was built on. I wasn't familiar with it, but uh, I'm reading that right now. So I'm ordering I'm ordering Red Rising for Calvin for Christmas. Oh, Shh, don't tell okay, him anybody. Cool. I won't. I won't. Calvin, if you're listening to this, then don't listen. Stop listening. It's be a good way for me to find out um, if he listens to the podcast, won't it? Mm-hmm. It will. It really will be. Um, Sydney on Instagram asks, how should believers regard secular art entertainment with obviously biblical themes? I watched Dune this weekend, found it to have a lot of biblical themes. Are all works of art entertainment just outworkings of the ultimate story of the Bible? This is a really good question, Sydney. Thank you for asking. I was actually just talking with one of my colleagues, Antonia, about Dune because we also saw some biblical themes in the movie as well. This is just as a reminder, not an endorsement for Dune. Not telling you you should watch it. I'm not saying Christians should watch Dune. I just want to be really clear about that. I just don't want to get canceled out in these streets. Um, You're going to get canceled. It's a matter of time. It's, it's, it's right. Um, exactly. But no, I mean, listen, uh, you want to enter in innocent as doves, shrewd as serpents. Okay. And yes, there are in a lot of movies, a lot of books, a lot of what you refer to as secular art and entertainment, the, the outworking of biblical themes. Why is that? Because the Bible is full of explorations, uh, divinely inspired explorations of the human experience. And so we should expect that the God who created the world and inspired his word knows humans better than anyone. So we're going to find those themes in secular art because people are going to be pulling from them and picking them up and using them. And again, they, uh, the Bible is a shared text, meaning it is, whether uh, we're cognizant or not of it, it is a text that is kind of always um, in reference when people are creating, cultivating, or doing, or, or creating art. It's just out there. Mm-hmm. It's a book that's in the uh, it's in the air, so to speak, in terms of the imagination, particularly in the global West. So, no, I mean, I'm not saying you should watch Dune or you have to watch Dune to understand the Bible, but I was not surprised to find biblical themes in Dune. My colleague Antonia was not surprised, and I don't think you should be surprised. And I bet if you looked, you probably could find them in a lot of other places. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, humans are storytelling people. We always have yeah. been, and 
uh, always will be. We tell stories. We do believe there's only one true story of the world, which is captured for us in scripture. But every single story ultimately is an echo of that story or a longing for truth of that story, which uh, comes from Mike Cosper's book. So Mike Cosper um, wrote a book, gosh, this is seven, eight years ago now called The Stories We Tell. And it talks about how, whether it's rom-coms or sitcoms or movies or kind of big, kind of climactic dramas are ultimately all echoes of the true story of a God who created the world that has fallen from him and is pursuing that he pursues redemption. It's good. good. Man, that Mike Cosper guy, he should, he should do a podcast or something. Um, I've heard of him somewhere. Uh, Leah on Instagram uh, asked, how would you clearly define the gospel? <laughs> <laughs> guys, sometimes, sometimes we look like idiots, guys. <laughs> sometimes. Okay, I'll take a crack at it. Thank um, you. I, I, I sure hope you get yeah. it right. Uh, what's nerve wracking when people ask these questions, you're like, oh, are they looking for like a specific? Okay. Um, the death, bur- well, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ mean that I am free from sin's penalty. I am being freed from sin's power, and I will one day be freed from sin's presence. Bang. You're up next, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's all true. I mean, that's Jesus a, that's came a, down to be born, born as, as a, a little baby. baby. <laughs> he lived a perfect, perfect life. I wish you could see he the hand motions. Is. And since he was, he buried, was buried in the tomb, tomb and, and on, on the, the third, third day. day, he rose from the dead. And that's the gospel <laughs> that's truth. That's the gospel truth. That's my daughter right there. She would yeah. nail that. That's what that's she would really have said. Good. Yeah, and even just biblically, if we wanted to use a verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's good news. Emily on Instagram, my six-year-old wants to know if we will see the Holy Spirit in heaven. Wow, what a really good question. Emily, I want you to get your your six-year-old right now, and I want to talk to the six-year-old. First off, six-year-old, Emily's six-year-old. This is a really good question. Yeah. You've got a great, you've got a great theological mind. I'm so glad you asked us this question. Uh, and I got to tell you, I've never, I don't know that I've ever considered this question. And God invites us to ask these kind of big, really fun, sometimes kind of crazy questions. And so this is a really good one. I don't think that we'll see the Holy Spirit in heaven. And I'll tell you why. It won't be because the Holy Spirit's not in heaven. The Holy Spirit will absolutely be in heaven. Um, it's not because the Holy Spirit uh, isn't a person. It's that the Holy Spirit is a spiritual person, uh, the third person of the Godhead, and he communicates to us. um, He brings to our hearts and minds um, the presence of Christ, uh, the words of God illuminated. And so I don't think we'll see the Holy Spirit, but I will say this, we will experience the Holy Spirit in heaven, just like we can experience the Holy Spirit as Christians today. When I sin and experience conviction today, that's me experiencing in relationship with God, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. In heaven, I won't sin, but I will have opportunity to do a lot of other things, praise and worship Jesus, celebrate who God is, and remember God's story. And do you know who will be enlivening and activating all of that work? it will be the Holy Spirit. So I don't think that I will see the Holy Spirit, but not everything that we experience in this world is something that we see. Uh, And the Holy Spirit is certainly a person for whom we do not see him, 
uh, enfleshed or embodied or incarnate, like we do the Son of God, Jesus Christ, but we experience his work. What a great, what a great question. I really love it. Thank you for asking. JT, Jen, would you say anything else to that? No, I think that's a good answer. I might be a little more agnostic about it than you are, though I think you're right. There's just so many instances in Scripture where the Holy Spirit is visible, like in the form of a dove or others, where I think I'd be more likely to say yes to what Kyle said, and I also don't know. There might be some kind of a physical presence that we don't, the ultimate answer is we don't have an answer for this. Right, uh, right. We're kind of surmising or um, using really, I mean, like Kyle just demonstrated, educated biblical knowledge to answer the question, but we also don't know. Yeah, it's good, but a great question mm-hmm. and a really profound question for a six-year-old. Maybe you have a future as a theologian, a professional theologian. Consider it. <laughs> uh, Grant on Instagram asked, JT, what was the title of your PhD thesis? Oh, Grant. Oh, <laughs> what was the title of your PhD thesis? And can you summarize it in a few sentences? A few, I JT. feel like Grant is a plant. Uh, Grant is mm-hmm. not a real person. I'm so this glad is- you asked, Grant. The only other people that have ever asked before are my wife and my mom. Uh, so I'm really grateful. <laughs> So I, I wrote my, the, the, the title of the thesis was Thus Says the Lord, a Trinitarian Account of Biblical Authority. And it was a look into um, divine speech and how Trinitarian operations come into play and how evangelical accounts primarily talk only about the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture and how we might have a more um, thicker account of divine inspiration and authority if we include the work of the Father and the Son as divine speakers. There you go. <laughs> JK, JK. I just want I was to know, a, I was you just say, snored about the doctrine of God. Uh, <laughs> I was about to say, JT's, JT's dissertation, Thus saith the Lord, why JT's opinions are definitive. Um, Mads on Instagram. <laughs> that's every uh, dissertation. That's no, no doubt. Mads on Instagram, what's the difference between women teaching in the church and pastoring? Okay, Mads. That's a great question for Jen. I don't mind taking a shot at it, but I'd love for you guys to back me up on my answer. Um, we'll see. So p- what pastoring is a little bit of an ambiguous term. I'm going to see if I can sharpen up the the idea a little bit um, with, the, with the idea of the office of pastor. So what is the difference between women teaching in the church and the office of pastor? Because there are things that I do in my role at the village that are pastoral. They involve the care of mm-hmm. the flock, but I am not in the office of pastor. Um, and so the way that we speak about um, the role of uh, teaching as it relates to men and women um, at my church, the way that we have defined it is that um, the teaching that is done by the person who holds the office of pastor in the context of the gathering is preaching. That is preaching. Um, because really the question that we come down to is, you know, what's the difference between preaching and teaching if a, if a woman is not allowed to, to preach um, according to the way we read the scriptures? So um, at the village, we would say that preaching is something that's done by a particular person in a particular context. It is done by the pastor who is a qualified man. Um, and then it is... Um, done in the context of the gathering, the Sunday gathering. So when I teach on a Tuesday night to the women of the church, am I teaching with authority? 
Well, yes, anyone who opens the scriptures and teaches is teaching with, the, with authority because the Bible's words hold authority. Uh, am I te- and anyone who teaches is exercising a form of authority. Your first grade teacher exercised a form of authority. Uh, am I teaching with the kind of authority that is in view in Paul's epistle to Timothy? Um, my church would say no, because that is an authority that I don't hold because I don't hold the office of pastor elder. Uh, however, I am teaching in accordance with the doctrine that has been set by the pastor elders of my church. So in another sense, I am um, speaking with the authority that they have, for, for, you know, to use kind of a secular term, have vested in me as someone who has been uh, deemed capable of teaching in that space. But I'm submitting to their authority and teaching only the doctrine that is in alignment with what they have set. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, you know where we're at on this. Uh we, I mean, I agree with that. Um, I think that's well said, you know, and Jen's not just pulling out the idea of male pastoring at, out of nowhere, you know, first Timothy and Titus are giving us the orders for those, for that office. Uh, and we're trying to be faithful to the tension that we find between some admonition, the admonitions and, uh, instruction over who can hold that office mm-hmm. with what appears to be the use of teaching gifts. Uh, broadly mm-hmm. in the New Testament church from men and women. Mm-hmm. So w- what's happening here? It's not that the Bible's saying, no, no women are teaching anywhere. That's not that. That's clear that it's not saying that. Uh, it's just saying that, hey, there is an office in the church that is reserved for qualified men, not men indiscriminately. Mm-hmm. You hear us saying qualified men. M- uh, men aren't, el- uh, elders aren't men just by virtue of being men. Men don't qualify to be elders by virtue of being a man. It's not how it works. It's qualified men. It's a kind of character and competency and calling um, that has to be affirmed and vetted by a church composed of both men and women. Mm-hmm. I would just further qualify the conversation by saying that where the where things get stuck a lot of times is um, the definition of preaching. Because if it is tone of voice or content of message, then I should never stand on a platform and and open a Bible and and teach from it because my tone of voice and my content are going to sound a lot like what happens in the Sunday gathering, but I don't exercise the same authority in my teaching that the person who stands and preaches in the Sunday gathering does. So I hope that what I'm saying reinforces what's being taught there, um, but it just doesn't carry the same um, weight, responsibility. Yeah, I've got nothing to add. Those are great explanations. Well, you're welcome, JT. Um, Uh, Dina on Instagram, the concept of predestination is really confusing. Could you explain its basic tenets? Yeah, JT, your, your punishment for not answering the last oh, question is you get yeah. to answer this Congrats one. Congrats <laughs> to be predestination on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think we kind of covered this a little bit already, perhaps, in um, when I talked about the uh, particular redemption question mm-hmm. 15, 20 minutes ago. So I don't, I don't need to go in depth here. The, the basic idea of of predestination is the idea that God chose chose the people for himself. And maybe one of the best texts for this isn't just Romans 9, but Genesis chapter 12. I mean, in Genesis 12, God is is electing Abraham and not Abraham's neighbor. However, one of the parts of the conversation that often gets missed is Abraham is predestined, chosen, elected. Israel is chosen and elected for the sake of their neighbors. We don't know exactly how that works out, but ultimately the hope, the idea of predestination is that God has selected some so that he might receive glory among all peoples, all nations, all tribes, 
uh, forever. And so what we don't want to do is allow predestination to simply be a, it is individualistic. Like God chose me, I believe, in Christ Jesus before the foundations of the world. That's an act of mercy and grace. But he chose me that I might give glory to him through the gospel of Jesus so that the others that he has chosen might be saved as well. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. Uh, I've actually not read this. This is kind of an anecdotal quote that I've heard others say. He says, you know, God has chosen and elected a people for himself before the foundations of the earth. We have no idea who they are. Should they have white, uh, yellow uh, stripes painted on their back, I would go share the gospel with them. But since they don't, we share the gospel indiscriminate with all people, believing that God loves the world. That's great. That's a really good nuance. I don't think I've actually ever heard before, JT, about how those who are predestined are predestined so that those that everyone would, would see the glory of God. That's a good yeah. nuance. Thanks. Um, this question is on from Instagram. It comes from a friend of the show. Oh, hey. A, sp- a spouse of oh, one of our okay. hosts, Macy English. <laughs> Who's apparently uh, hey. very easy to be married to. Praise God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, praise God for that. Yeah. Uh, Don't ask Macy- her the same question. <laughs> <laughs> we won't. Um, uh, Macy English on Instagram asks, what's your favorite thing about being in ministry? JT, I mean, we got to start with you, man. It's Definitely got to be my the pastor's wife. <laughs> she is the best. <laughs> There's no doubt about my favorite part of ministry. is, ha- that, sounds, is having- that sounds like it came with the job. I don't think that's what you're trying to communicate here. Uh, I think my favorite thing in ministry is it requires teamwork the three of us got to experience Mm -hmm. that. Like you realize in ministry, there is no person who gets to do this by themselves. We genuinely, whether it's a spouse or deep friendship, like we have with brothers and sisters, you realize your limits and that Mm -hmm. we need each other and that God has gifted the whole body for the work of ministry, not just one person. And so I I think that's something that I knew coming into ministry, but as as I've done ministry more and more and more, you realize, goodness, I am not I am not fit for this whole task. I need brothers and sisters alongside of me to do this. And then that builds genuine friendship. And again, mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't mean to get all sappy here. Can you believe the friendship that the three of us get to have? I know. We wouldn't have that if, if we just had like met each other at Starbucks and talked to ministry. We have what we have because we've been in the bunker together doing the real work of ministry, sleeves rolled up, getting to do it with each other. And I love that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah me too. Beat that, guys. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the friendship and the the partnership and I was just I, JT I just started rewatching West Wing again. Mm, yes, you did. And uh, <laughs> there's that moment. It's like in uh, it's the first time where they do the uh, Leo's crackpot day where they bring in like the people from outside the White House. It's in season one, episode like four or five or something, and they're having chili with the president uh, and like all yes. of all the people there. And he, um, the president. Bartlett, he looks out and he's talking with Leo and with one of the senior staffers. And he was like, there's nothing that makes me happier than seeing uh, colleagues converse with one another. And I, I, just to echo what you're saying, is like, I, I, I don't know that I'm going to be able to beat that because it is definitely one of the best parts about doing the work is doing it with people that you love and that mm-hmm. you care about um, and creating and cultivating things together. I think if I was going to add on that, it, it would just be the work of seeing deep transformation mm-hmm. in people's life. Mm-hmm. That. I mean, that is kind of a byproduct of a healthy community is that that starts to develop. Mm-hmm. And I would say seeing people experience deep transformation, like seeing people learn God's word and learn how to teach God's word and learn how to share God's word and um, come to believe that they're really beloved in Jesus Christ. I mean, those, I mean, that, that is mm-hmm. one of the best parts about doing this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, it's the community and not just being a part of that community, but watching that community do its work, like having yeah. have, having its effect on us. And 
I'm fresh off of uh, last night. We had our our Christmas dinner that we always have with the lead team for the women's Bible study, and I just sit and look around that table, and I just I I just want to pinch myself. Like the the sense of shared purpose is unlike anything I've ever felt anywhere outside of the church. Mm. You know, just united around something that matters to all of us, and we don't each serve it in the same way, but we all serve it with the same vigor, and. I just, I love that. Mm-hmm. Last question here for the Q&A. Best books on church planting, Redeemed Scribbles. on Insta- Redeemed Scribbles on Instagram. Okay. I, I want to make sure I read that right. Redeemed yep. Scribbles. Best books on church planting. I mean, there's a lot. And I got to tell you, a lot of them are not great. <laughs> um, so um, I, I, feel, I think I read them all. Um, but I would say there's a couple that stand out. Um, planting Missional Churches, Ed Stetzer and Daniel M. is a great book. I got to tell you at this point, if a church planner was asking me about planning a church, I would say you need to read Center Church by Tim Keller. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. You, need, you, you need to read that book. You need to read something in the missional church movement. It doesn't have to be planting missional churches, but that one's a good one. And Ed Stetzer's been giving this a lot of thought for a long time. And I would say you have to read Deep Discipleship. And I'm, I'm, I'm being honest with you. I'm not just saying that because JT's on here. I'm just saying I am in a church that is doing a hybrid model with adult education. And I, I know firsthand you can scale formative adult learning education environments, and it will be a tremendous blessing for your church and for your people. And so I, if I was going to say three books, I'd say you got to read Center Church. That's got to be on there. You, you need to read something in the missional church movement. There's a lot out there. Planting Missional Churches by Ed Stetzer, Unstoppable Force by Erwin McManus. Those would both be fine. Um, you got to, and you need to read deep discipleship. You, you do. You need to have a vision for how training is going to happen at your church, not just how you're going to survive the first three years, but how you're going to thrive for a hundred years. And the deep discipleship book will help you think through that. So I would read the New Testament epistles. Bang. Is that like a <laughs> Jesus juke that you're doing real quick? I'm just joking. I've just never read a church okay. planning book. Okay. I'd read chapter okay. 29 of Acts, but I'm. Oh man. Yeah. No, Wait, I got no idea. It doesn't exist. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would actually, I'm going to answer really quickly, Kyle, because I agree with what, what you, not because I think you said deep discipleship, but if I was giving advice to a church planter or a church planting team or a church planting spouse, I would say read less on planting and read more on pastoring. Yeah. Read things like Center Church, read a good book on ecclesiology, Greg Allison, Sojourners and Strangers, or Mark Dever, good. The Church. Like you're planting a church read about the church and how to pastor, care for, shepherd a church. That's far more important than any um, kind of entrepreneurial hack that someone's going to give you. You're called to be a pastor before you're called to be a planter. Love it. Great way to end. Listen, I just want to say what I said up top. I want to say it again. Thank you. You guys are a phenomenal audience. It makes doing stuff like this fun. It makes us want to do more of it. Thank you. If this podcast has been of benefit to you, this season or a previous season, and you're wondering like, hey, how can I help? We get I get these Instagram questions all the time. Engineer Brad, who runs our Instagram and socials, he gets them all the time, which is how can I support Knowing Faith? That's very kind of you to offer. If you're interested in doing something, leaving a review on iTunes really helps. I know that seems crazy to us, 
but it's just how the algorithm works. The more reviews that are left on iTunes, the more people find the podcast. I know it sounds weird. It even sounds kind of chintzy and cheesy to ask for it. So you don't have to. I'm not telling you you should. I'm just saying if you want to help, that's a practical way you can help is leave a review. If you're looking for like beyond that, we have a storehouse of cool stuff on Patreon, patreon.com slash knowingfaith. That's a way for you to both support the show and get some cool behind-the-scenes stuff. You can also share the episodes when they drop. That's a very practical way to just get them out there into the world so that other people can find them. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the people who are listening in Ireland and Australia and in Indonesia and in Turkey. Thank you for listening to this show. We had no idea how far the reach would be on this show, and we could not be more happy that people are blessed by it and being trained by it. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And I also want to say thank you to our season sponsor this season. If you think now might be the time to pursue more theological training, log on to sbts.edu slash explore. This online diagnostic tool that Southern built just for knowing faith listeners considers the theological training you have now, factors in what more you want to accomplish, and explores the Southern seminary degrees that will prepare you to do even more. So whether you're exploring the idea of theological training or you feel called to full-time ministry, you can get personalized guidance at sbts.edu slash explore. We will be back. Knowing Faith will be back in action in mid-January. We will be jumping into Romans 9 through the end of the letter. We've got some great guests that we'll be having on next season. We've got some special surprises for you. Keep your eyes peeled on that podcast feed right after the new year. There might be something in there for you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace.